There's an upswing in interest around the intersections of faith with imagination, the arts and embodiment. We call that crossroads the Opoetics. And that is what this whole event is about coming up here on March 9th and 10th of this year. That's right, y'all. Theopoetics is right on the horizon, and you need to get there. I'm going to be there. A whole bunch of cool folks is going to be there. Theopoetics is a proud sponsor of this here podcast, Profane Faith, and we're going to be doing some live podcasting there on March 9th and 10th of this year. That's just in a few weeks. Let me tell you something, y'all. This is not going to be your regular run-of-the-mill conference. This is a decentering conference. This is a undoing conference. This is a conference for those of you who have been seeking a conference that is much different than those that you've been to. You need to get on down to the Theopoetics Conference. It's coming up here. Special discounts for those who are profane faith listeners. Because poets, preachers, rappers, professors, and students of theology and religion, spoken word artists, clergy, musicians, visual artists, and perhaps you should be at this event and engage with what it means to be an artist, a theologian, a practitioner, an activist, and those who are just disrupting the madness that we find ourselves in. Hope to see you there. are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. Because Americans are dreamers too. You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. Why? Why are our black sons and daughters being treated so badly? This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back, welcome back. Oh my goodness, season two. Oh man, that's a trip just to... um. Just to say it, just to say season two, my goodness. Um, man, y'all, here we go. This is it. We are in season two of Profane Faith. It's hard to believe this thing that just started in my mind and <laughs> in the basement in the lab of my uh, of my home here out here in uh, Chicago um, is now, shoot, and in, into, it's gotten some, we've gotten some good We've gotten some good press. We've gotten some good feedback. Um, I'm just kind of blown away. For those of you who've been hanging, thank you. Uh, thank you for making this uh, just a great experience. Thank you for uh, your comments, your feedback, your texts, your emails, um, your connections. You're just you're you're calling me up and saying, "Dude, when is season two coming, man?" Um, thank you. I really appreciate it. that's just it's it's overwhelming to think that. Um, this is you know that that that's people are actually listening you know what i'm saying because you never know i mean you know what i'm saying i mean you never know what and who is is listening to this thing and you never know who is out there um picking this up and getting something from it and so i just again i just really thank you from the bottom of my heart 
uh for those of you who've been listening and those of you who've been doing some reviews on 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 facebook and and of course on itunes i really thank you please continue that um I, that that helps and that that's a great currency in the in the podcast world so thank you so much for those of you who have done that we can always we can always use more we can always use more <laughs> but thank you uh i'm i'm excited i'm really excited about uh this season because you know your boy's been learning some more new skills on uh and uh in my daw my digital audio workstation um i have in the meantime put my studio back together or well it's almost done i i built my console um built it myself with my own two hands it's uh it's wooden and uh, made the desk and carved out all the holes and just uh you know put it together you know for uh you know got the dual monitors and everything and it just it feels good it feels good to be getting back into things like this because this quite honestly is what gives me life be honest with you um it uh helps stay off depression and anxiety and um and just anger and frustration especially in the times that we find ourselves in um and so you know just just being able to edit the podcast and just that i mean i find a lot of joy in doing that and you know i know for some people be like oh my gosh i can't imagine anything worse but i love that i love tinkering with stuff and um for those of you know me and those of you've heard the um you know my my story uh, and whatnot if you haven't uh, episode one go back to episode one um you know, it's been, um, uh, it, I, I've, I've always had just an interest in audio um, recording. And so it's just, it's been nice to get my studio back up and running. And I'm just really excited to have that because I'm hoping to start featuring more of my own music. And that saves a lot on just copyright issues and, uh, you know, uh, licensing and all that stuff. I can just use my own music and I don't have to worry about it, not to pay anybody. <laughs> um, and, uh, and more importantly, you know, it just kind of adds another extra, you know, uh, level to the show. And so, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited about this new season, uh, to get going with this and, uh, you know, start using Pro Tools and uh, Logic and all those great things. For those of you who are tech heads and you know whatnot, you know you know what I'm talking about, right? And so, uh, the music, the music industry. I think you know a couple things. Let me note on this. Um, you, you know, when I left the the music industry, it was you know at the time I was young and, and it was out of a real concern for you know, my own thought process around the world and secular things. And so I thought I was doing the right thing. And at the time, you know, I was, but there was always a hole in my heart feeling like, man, I left something right. Like, um, and I never necessarily knew how to do that. And it really didn't come out until, um, years, years later in therapy, man, you know, I was talking with my therapist and, you know, he was like, you know, that's something you need more. And that's something that you need to, you know, really, um deal with and so i did and man it's 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 been great and it's been great to revive this kind of my music life 2.0 now you know what i'm saying because it's like music has always been a part of my life my mom um played my my dd grandmother you know she used to sing and she used to try to play some things as well so music has always been around in me and you know i'm always still trying to look for my dad so i don't even know music ran in his his family and whatnot but nonetheless i've just uh it's been something that's been a passion of mine and so um 
like I said, it's uh, it's been great to get that back. I, I guess I, <laughs> I guess I know I'm overstating that, but it's just like it's just it's it's really exciting. And just combine that with being able to put some ideas out in audio form rather than writing, um, uh, and which I love. I love writing, uh, but to put these ideas out and to have conversations with people um, around things that are pressing right now um it's powerful and i'm just really excited to to be a part of that so once again thank you for being a part of that and here we go season two. Oh mercy there is so much to cover too um gosh dogs where do i start man at the at the if you're listening to this in real time and you've you know downloaded it or you streaming it right now you know we're it's the it's near the beginning of 2018 and um you know we've had another school shooting and here we go same rhetoric same discourse right you know thoughts and prayers uh we're going to you know kind of overlook a lot of the issues and just kind of just pray for people and i don't know i don't know how this thing is going to break down yeah i really don't i really don't um because it's so embedded into our culture and our society right um and to have yet another shooting a mass shooting in our society um here we are in 2018 and i know there's some rumors floating around whether it's you know we've had what is it like uh 18 or 17 or something like that shootings i saw several different stories around that one was saying we had one was saying it was debunked either way we've had too damn many just too damn many to begin with one is too many um but here we are still having these conversations around what does gun control look like what does what does it mean to be um you know a violent society you know when yet when we're telling other people not to be violent right uh but here we are uh and when i say we i mean collectively right i'm not talking about necessarily individuals per se um although it was interesting to hear 45's um excuse me uh talk uh you know he gave a presidential talk and talking about how you know kids were um you know kids needed to be taken care of and you know let's uh let's love on them and i mean it was just a oh man it was just it was just felt like a, a big pile of crap pretty honest with you and um it just didn't feel genuine he was reading it off i mean and just it just in, in pretty much anything that comes out of that that man's mouth um i just don't believe um other than the stuff that he said he's gonna do right you know he said who he said he is um and he continues to be that and so you know we can't overlook that because <clears throat> excuse me that's that's who he is and at the same time when he put speeches like this together about how oh you know we're going to care for the people and we're going to care for that it's just kind of like come on dude you ain't caring for nobody except yourself and the people around you that you think are loyal to you so i don't know y'all we oh my goodness we're i mean you what, what do you say what do you say to that so stay tuned. We're going to do another episode um, on on this very issue, gun control, however you want to call it, um, the mass killings, the violence that we you know continue to experience. I think it's something we need to continue talking about. And if you haven't, season one, got Kathy Kong and Dr. Andre Johnson talking about this. And I reposted that, uh, uh, a matter of fact, you know, with the hashtag, the Florida shooting. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's something that we need to continue having. This is a... This is a powerful, powerful, powerful discussion that we need to be having. So my first guest on and man, I feel like I sound like I'm about to be on a, um, a talk show host, but it, it kind of is. It kind of is. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but uh, our very first guest here on the top of season two is my former editor, Dr. David Congdon, uh, one of the best editors I've probably worked with. 
um, in my uh, publishing uh, career. And and, uh, and one of the reasons he's so good is because it wasn't like he just gave me pats on the back and was just like, oh, yeah, great job. and excellent. No, no, no. It was great feedback. It was the kind of constructive feedback that didn't feel like, oh, this is personal. So oftentimes, you know, particularly as people of color, you know, those of us who publish and those of us who put material out, you know, you get your reviews back, especially in the academy, right? You know, it's peer review, blind review. Some of these comments that you get back, I mean, honestly, it's some of it's not even constructive feedback. It's just straight up opinion. It's just like, this is the way I feel. I don't like the way this, this sounds. I don't really like you. And here's my opinion about it. But that wasn't David. David wasn't at all. I mean, he would give good feedback, you know, uh, and for the blind reviewers, he'd be like, look, here's some good ones. Here's yeah, some other ones. Maybe you can pay attention to this. Maybe you can pay attention to that. You can kind of ignore this. And I appreciate that. You work with it. It was a yin and yang type of relationship. So, um, and he'll share a little bit more here um, as he, we get into our conversation. But, you know, he was fired from uh, InterVarsity Press, and uh, that was a sore spot. It was supposed to be a sore spot for me, a sore spot, obviously, for him, um, you know, and uh, he'll get into the why here in a little bit, so I won't necessarily give that away, but uh, I think it is important to know in this era that we live in, you know, your job is on the line if you think differently, if you have a different ideology that uh, presses against the, the, the norm, right? Um, so I thought it was important to bring him on. He's an author. Um, he is uh, he's a speaker. He's a scholar working in the area of theology and culture. Uh, he hails originally from Portland, Oregon, completing a B.A. in English at Wheaton College. Uh, he acquired his MDiv and Ph.D. in theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. And he has since worked in the publishing industry as an academic editor. Uh, his life is kind of divided into two parts. Professionally, uh, he's an acquisitions editor over at the University Press of Kansas. And academically, he continues to maintain an active research and publishing program. All right. This brother's the author of The Mission of Demythologizing, Rudolf Boltman's Dialectical Theology. Rudolf Boltman, uh, a comparison or companion, excuse me, to his theology. And his most recent, which we're going to be talking about here uh, in a minute, is The God Who Saves, a dogmatic sketch. Man, this brother's got it, man. And uh, and I'll post, you know, his website and his material and his books uh, here in the show notes. But uh, I'm, I'm excited to bring him on, mainly because this is a deep theological conversation. Um, this is one of the conversations I had envisioned having when I first laid out the podcast was having these conversations around faith and theology. I mean, this brother is breaking it down. Um, and so I, you got to just check it out. Um, he's a great thinker. He's a great mind. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's landed on his feet. He's still on the journey. Um, but he's got an amazing just perspective in how he engages life theology god faith um and just really how he sees quote-unquote salvation yeah we're gonna get into that conversation and so um you may have to put this one on pause and rewind i'm not making this up i mean this brother had me thinking i'm like oh my gosh i feel like i'm you know back in seminary man so it's some good stuff here some good theology some good um ideas around um aspects of universalism and and what that looks like and you know just how do we connect with that how do we understand that how do we uh gain perspective on that so check this conversation out um with brother dr david congdon uh, well you know i grew up like 
many people I know, my my generation, kind of in a fairly conservative, fairly homogenous, kind of more or less white evangelical background. Okay. Um, uh, my and you know, I, I grew up on the West Coast in Oregon, and uh, you know that context, you know, given the fairly progressive liberal politics, meant that the churches in, the, in that area reacted against it. They were very conservative, very reactionary, very insular. Um, and so I grew up with a very um, narrow, uh, very self-contained kind of cultural bubble. okay. i didn't I didn't know much about anything about the Christian <laughs> tradition or the faith. I, I didn't even know there were denominations until college. Um, I, I didn't know that they were Christian. I mean, I, I had no idea. I had a friend when I was growing up who was Lutheran, and I didn't know that was a Christian denomination. I just I, I thought that was a different religion, you know? And so, um, you know, it, it was a, just a uh, going out to college and then, you know, and going beyond that was just a real eye-opener for me and um i went to seminary i remember i went i went to princeton seminary and i had no idea about what reformed mm. theology was i didn't know what, what presbyterianism was um you know I, I just i i went there because that's it was the seminary i was told to go to and yeah uh, it was cheap you know it was free tuition you know so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh it was just a, a fire hose of of learning for me and uh had to really catch up after years of ignorance. Um, and you know, through that whole process, I, you know, I came to kind of see the problems with the way in which my evangelical upbringing had shaped and formed me and okay. to, uh, to really be, um, I mean, I was, I was just very uncomfortable with, with difference and, and diversity and in, in thought especially but in other ways as well um and and so i i really you know i had to struggle with that and realize that i, I need i needed to really rethink my faith from the ground up and i hmm. i kind of i kind of just uh subjected myself to this constant uh, scrutiny and, and critical rethinking of my my own identity and, and my own theology and and uh and that that process is still ongoing. It's I hope that never ends, but um, certainly for a period of there, several years, it was this massive deconstruction of my own faith, and mm. um, and and eventually in pieces a rebuilding of it. Although um, part of the part of that journey was not just educational; it was also um, some pretty traumatic experiences in mm. church context. Especially, uh, I was working at a church in Princeton, or at least while I was at Princeton. Um, and uh, I was I was more or less, you know, kicked out or, or fired from that position because of, you know, LGBTQ affirming views oh boy. Uh, at the time, and and um, and that that was um, my first experience with uh, my first really kind of visceral experience of this kind of. Uh, exclusionary evangelical uh, practices. I mean, I I had. I had sort of encountered it indirectly in my in my other places in my life, but it had never really affected me directly in a way that I didn't understand it. Okay. Um, and so, I when I saw that when I encountered that in that in that way, um, that was that that was an important kind of shift for me. It, basically, at that point, I 
abandoned all evangelical kind of context and, mm. and um, moved into more of a, a mainline world. We, we, uh, my family and I went to an ELCA church for, for a couple of years and then eventually moved into the Episcopal church, which uh, we were received in the Episcopal church uh, last year. Um, and that's been, that's been our home um, for a while now and we're quite happy there, but, uh, but there, you know, all, all that's to say, um, the journey has been, uh, <laughs> I, it's been one where a, kind of an intellectual rethinking of my, of my own faith, but also this kind of personal journey of trying to understand, uh, where I fit hmm. in its wider family. Um, and, and there are times where I don't know if I fit at all. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, <laughs> uh, this past year has been pretty tough in, in many ways for me. And, um, I think, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, I I still remain committed to participating and engaging this wider community of, of faith, but uh, but it's a it's an ongoing question for me in terms of um, what the future looks like, hmm. uh, both personally and I think for the church. Man, man, that's that's man, that's 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 some good stuff right there. I mean, because I think, I mean, you're hitting on, I mean, what I like to always call grown folk faith. You know, it's like, man, you've you're in a spot where you're you are you know thinking it's like that metacognition of theology it's like you know thinking about thinking and thinking about more of this um well i mean let me ask you this then i mean you know just with where we're at and it's just been a lot of you know work around um you know evangelicals white evangelicals you got prii or prri study um the end of white christian america i mean what are your takes on some of these things, man? I mean, you know, is white evangelicalism, is that, you know, is it, is it on its way out? Should it be? I mean, uh, and particularly from your perspective of, of you know, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm not in, in that world. But like what what has that been? And particularly, you know, having worked for an evangelical um, publisher, if we can if we can talk about that, if we can go there. Yeah, we, sure. Yeah, we can go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I I, I always um you know, I, I hesitate to kind of prognosticate about the future of evangelicalism. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I think that the data on, you know, the rise of, you know, uh, the nuns or, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the moving away from kind of identification with evangelicalism, uh, that's going on right now. I, I, um, I certainly think that there are, are significant and, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, problematic trends. If if you're in that world uh, regarding the future of those institutions, yeah. I um, that's that's pretty pretty obvious. Um, I I think you know, there's always probably going to be some kind of um, fundamentalist stronghold that wants to retain some vision of the past. I mean, I think that's probably. Um, going to persist for quite some time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, I think the institutions that have perpetuated these, these subcultures and communities are probably not going to survive. And I think probably the reason for that, uh, there are multiple reasons for that, that are complicated and have to do with politics and economics and all the rest. But, um, but, uh, I, I think, you know, so this is my own personal experience, but I think this is true for a lot of people. You know, a lot of the change in one's faith and change in one's ideas, not just about faith, but about a number of issues, um, often the, the catalyst for that is encountering difference, right? Encountering mm-hmm. 
people personally and realizing that person that you might have had a stereotype about or might have had you know some idea about um, that breaks down through concrete personal encounter um, and the changing demographics of this country uh, suggest to me that um, there will be increasingly more personal encounters that will make it harder and harder to sustain the kind of homogenous insular culture that white evangelicalism requires in order to remain what it is. Um, I think that's probably going to make it impossible in the long run for those kind of cultures to, to remain uh, at least as stable as they have been for so long. Yeah. Um, and so um, that's, I think just inevitably just the nature of the demographic change will probably make this, that stuff uh, break down. Um, but I mean, you know, there's always, I mean, I, you know, the guy could be wrong. There could be uh, a massive cult, you know, uh, reaction to all that and uh you know uh you know maybe uh maybe the uh america first crowd will 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 get their victories and you know ex you know who knows <laughs> but i um i i don't know it just seems like right now the data suggests that uh, that's that's unlikely and you know um white america will be a minority in in the coming decades and that's all to the good in terms of um hmm. forcing uh, people to uh, to wrestle with with differences and diversity in a way that um, yeah will make it will make it necessary for them to to kind of rethink some of their categories. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so what do you make then of this in particular? You know, we think about you know the eschaton and just you know uh, the end of the world, and uh, so <laughs> you've got you know there's I'm seeing more and more different articles and different people saying that you know. Trump is this is God's president that God set this up. And one of the evidences of that is that, you know, everything they throw at him doesn't stick. You know, he's it's like God has had a got a hedge of protection, as one pastor put it, you know, around him. And so, you know, he he is doing God's work. And so I'd, I'd, I'd love to maybe, you know, you just talk a little bit about, um, <laughs> you know, what what your thoughts are on that, you know, and particularly, you know, is, is you know, and then, he, you know, the whole thing with Israel and, and, and you know, and, and Palestine. I mean, so I'm I'm curious just how uh, you've you've, <laughs> you've interwoven with that as a as a good theolo theological thinker. Uh, well, so I mean that that whole way of thinking presupposes an account of God that I just no longer you know understand anymore. <laughs> um, I I I think what's interesting about some of those statements is that you know you can look in history and. Evangelicals have said similar things about past presidents, whether it was, yeah. you know, yeah. Bush or Nixon or whoever it might have been. You know, mm -hmm. there was, uh, um, I, you know, so uh, that uh, kind of isolating Trump as some sort of unique test case um, doesn't strike me as plausible historically, since you know that kind of cycle repeats itself. But um, that that being said, but the account of God that that that's undergirding all of that—that's the more interesting question, right? I mean, yeah. I, the. Uh, the the notion that there could be um, a divinely you know ordained president uh, or a blessed president um, and that that all of that kind of um, requires a certain account of how we view God's relationship to the world and to politics that um, uh, just comes in, you know it, it runs into so many issues uh, I, <laughs> I I I don't even know if it uh, if it's uh, something I can uh, articulate the problems with right now but I mean it's um, I mean, it, yeah, I, yeah, 
<laughs> I know. What, 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 what are you gonna say? I mean, it's a... <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it's I mean, I think it's a curiosity. I mean, so you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I come out of the Seventh Day Adventist, you know, realm, Black right. Seventh Day Adventist realm, and so that's like a whole nother layer of intersectionality on that. Um, and then the people I was raised with came out of the Black Southern Baptist Church, right. Pentecostalism. I mean, so there was this funky mixture within our you know, church dynamic. Um, but, you know, the end of the world was was always, always right there oh, on the sure. tip of our tongue. And, you yeah. know, what's going to happen? And, you know, God's entering his most high holy place and that, you know, God did that in 1875 and that the book of judgment could close any time and the time of trouble starts and this and this and that. And then God is coming back. And so yeah. and it was just always kind of you're living in that. So I'm just curious, like what, again, your thoughts on just how, Trump sociologically, maybe, um, you know, sociopolitically has kind of fast forwarded that conversation um, and just and really it's gotten so, certain people, you know, up up and around because I don't think it's just on the margins anymore. I mean, I'm hearing more and more of this, you know, in, you know, in, you know, in mainstream in different parts. But I, I don't know. Those I guess that does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. I think I, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's even that unique, though. I mean, I, I, I remember. I mean, I'm, I've been reading through some histories of evangelicalism right now, and mm-hmm. um, you know, like when the state of Israel was created, right? I mean, there was just ev- evangelical, you know, evangelicals were just freaking out about this, about how you know this is the sign of the times. You know, we're living in the end days. I mean, Billy Graham's crusades in the in oh, the, yeah. early, the 50s were <laughs> yeah. all about how this is this is we're ushering in the final days. You know, the last judgment is nigh. You know, all that stuff was was very much in the air. So, I mean, I yeah. I, it, I don't know if, if if anything's happening right now is is really unique. It's just um, maybe more of the same that we've 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 had to live through in various ways. I I think part um, you know this this we kind of each generation has to kind of experience this uh, this this kind of baptism of some sort of presidential figure or, or political leader as as God's anointed one. Um, and but eschatology, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's crucial to this whole thing. I mean, that's crucial to evangelicalism. Um, I mean, I mean, Matthew Avery Sutton's work, American Apocalypse, is mm, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, his in that book is is great in terms of exposing and and really arguing that the kind of this apocalyptic eschatology is really the the heart and soul of modern American evangelicalism, um, which I think you know, he's I think he's basically right on that. And um, and it's true. I mean that. The eschatological uh, vision, um, the particular form of it that it's that's taken, has been so crucial to American Christianity and especially evangelicalism, um, both in in terms of spurring on like social reform back in the 19th century mm-hmm. with with people like you know with Finney and other folks, but also in the more negative fundamentalist reactionary forms of you know this judgment's going to happen in, imminently, and so. Um, all that matters is saving some souls before the final judgment. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and then it got politicized heavily with the cold war era, right? You oh, know, yeah. Russia, so the Soviet union was, was the beast of the, you know, the, you know, that was the antichrist was going to come from, from, from the Soviet union and all the rest, you know? So yeah. I, I, um, 
yeah i mean n- nowadays it's it's what it's north korea or you know oh yeah you know, yeah 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 so it's it's some some communist uh or you know uh dictatorship is going to be the is always the the enemy of the of the christian western christian uh, <laughs> uh society and culture right yeah um, yeah it's, it's always west versus east well, um well it scares the hell out of somebody in hawaii man his brothers put right, buttons yeah, true. <laughs> everything out there Jeez. Um, well, I mean, so, okay. So then backing up then a little bit then. And so then in where you're at and how you see that, because again, I mean, I, I yeah. mean, I get that. I mean, I get eschaton and you know, all that type of stuff with, you know, the end of the world. I mean, that can just, you know, go on everywhere, but how, how have you come to understand God? You know, do what is, what does mm-hmm. the theology of, of, of God look like for, for you right now? You know, that's, you know, where, where you're at, the stuff that you've been through, uh, stuff that you've seen, you know, people can say, man, I've seen some things, man. So I know you've yeah. seen some things. Where do you, yeah. how do you then understand God? What is, what does faith look like with, with your corner of the world right now? Ooh, that's a, that is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> Come on. I will, I will try to see Come on. if I can answer that. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay. So, <laughs> uh, you know, growing up, you know, I, it was, Faith is always a matter of you know believing certain kind of doctrines and having you yeah. know your your doctrinal ducks in a row. Yep. Um, I, uh, I now I would I, I so I I embrace something I would guess I would call like an existential kind of conception of of Christianity, you know whether it's kind of go back to Kierkegaard or or uh, more recent versions, um, and and essentially what that comes down to is um, I, I I understand faith as this. Um, not a matter of doctrinal belief, yeah. but rather um, a, a commitment of the heart, okay. you know, a commitment of, of, of the will. And, um, but it's not one where we can just like, you know, I choose to do this, you know, I, you know, it's, it's not like this pietistic, you know, I'm, I'm my decision of faith for Jesus kind of thing. It's, <laughs> um, it's not, it's not so defined in that way. I think for me, the faith, faith for me now is more. I, I would define faith now as a sense of being taken out of myself. Mm. Um, uh, God as this force or this power that that disrupts um, my attempts to remain secure within myself. Yeah, and forcing me out of myself to engage with others and to mm. be in communion with with my neighbors. Mm. So, so faith is that experience of being taken out of myself and being thrust into relationship with other people. Yeah. Um, and God is the, is the power that, um, that continually interrupts my life. Um, and that, that doesn't come in a safe, tidy doctrinal or ecclesial <laughs> box, right? Doesn't, right. I don't get that just on like a Sunday morning, right? I mean, in fact, it may almost never come on a Sunday morning. Um, rather, though, that that experience, that existential encounter with with the divine, um, may happen in the most profane places. Yes, uh, and uh, often, almost content, often. I mean, maybe always, in some ways, does. Um, and uh, and so that's so. A lot of what I've been trying to do in my own theology is to reconstruct a view of Christian Christianity and Christian theology that makes that profane encounter with God mm. uh, the kind of center point of understanding our faith. Okay. Um, 
so that, so that's been that's been my project is to kind of um, rethink Christianity and Christian theology on that kind of existential, secular, worldly kind of this worldly basis. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, um, that's, that's been my, my effort and I, it leads me down a lot of different, um, you know, controversial rabbit hole, rabbit holes and stuff, <laughs> but I, um, uh, for me, and, and, and this is why the biography is important. And for me, it was always, it's been always about trying to find a Christianity, find a faith that makes sense of this world and, um, addresses those kinds of deep existential questions that that we have or at least i've had um and uh yeah the old answers just didn't didn't um satisfy that they didn't fit the reality that i experienced and um and often the reality i experienced um was deeply uh hurtful and traumatizing and damaging right and and mm. and so much of that was due to harmful theologies and harmful conceptions of religion and faith that um, I continually see and encounter. And, and I, I, I think, you know, I, I, it's been important to me that um, if your if your conception of faith, if your conception of God is is um, causing people if it's cause is a threat to people's livelihood is a yeah. threat to people's existence. Mm -hmm. Then we need, then we need to abandon it. Right. We need to get, we need to find something else. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think our doctrines are more important than people's lives. Mm. Mm. And, and, and so, um, you know, the, the crises that we're experiencing on, on a very existential level, whether it's with mental health or just the things that we're encountering that the, the traumas that people are, are burdened by because of of toxic Christianity and toxic religion. Yeah. Um, um, for me, it's imperative as a theologian to conceive of of a to to work on a on developing an understanding of faith that is anti toxic. Um, and I uh, that's that's been my my journey, my quest. And and then and, and and speaking of that, man, is is you know what? Name some of those. I mean, what are, what are some of those toxic theologies, man? What are what are some of those areas that are that are that are disruptive and that are destructive? I should say, you know, to the faith. I mean, I know. I mean, I've talked extensively on you know on on, on the show, you know, about stuff in my own life and just some of the things I've seen that are that are hindering people. But I'd I'd love to hear from you, you know, like what are some of those those areas. Uh, and feel free to, you know, throw out some 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 four syllable, you know, uh, uh, words too, man. You know, this is our, our audience has got some good smarts on them and stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Um, so, uh, the, where where to begin? Right. There's yeah. Just so many. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Brother. I, I'm gonna just. Uh, I, so I think the one I'm working with right now a lot with, um, because I think so many of of the toxic forms of Christianity that we're encountering right now have to do with, with certain conceptions of the church, yeah. certain accounts of, of the church that are problematic. So for me, one of the central ones I, I'm kind of dealing with is this notion that, um, that, the, the, that Christianity is essentially its own culture. Hmm. Yeah. Um, this this is going to sound a little abstract, but I, I do think this is this idea that Christianity is a separate, distinct culture all of its own. Okay, uh, is 
a is really um, underpinning a lot of the kind of kind of current problems within both the theological academy, but also in uh, American Christianity more 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 broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and what because what that does, I mean, this this operates on different levels, but what it effectively does is it it um, it turns Christianity into this um, this separate entity, this separate kind of cultural world mm. that you can then play off against uh, the others, right? The other worlds out there. And, and it, it, it perpetuates a, a sense of, um, well, it, it leads into things like the Benedict option, right? Or okay. things like, um, or evangelical separatism, where we can kind of create our own separate subcultures, um, but it, it is pervasive in other other realms too, outside of evangelicalism, fundamentalism. Um, and I, I, anyway, I just think that notion that Christianity is its own culture is problematic for a number of reasons. But but one is it, it really hinders us in our ability to think interculturally mm. um, and think in a, in a way in which um, uh, that recognizes the intrinsic diversity and difference that's internal to the faith. Okay. Um, and the cultural plurality that that needs to be part of our understanding of of, our, of this community. Um, so anyway, that's just that's just one. It's a it's a it might be a bit academic, but it, it, I think it has actually a lot of tentacles that reach into a lot of areas, whether it's in our politics or yeah. in our you know our theology or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, that's just yeah. that's one. It, it's connected to other things, but I think that's a big one. Um, uh, other, other, I mean, all, I mean, there's the usual suspects. The usual suspects are like your doctrine of atonement, right? The <laughs> penal substitutionary atonement is the, uh, is the one that people most often bring up. And yeah, I mean, PSA as it's often shortened, um, uh, is a problem. I mean, the, the penal substitutionary atonement model is, is deeply, um, toxic for a number of reasons. I, I think other, others have already, um, explored that in depth. I don't, Need to repeat all those arguments here, um, but part of what, what's interesting for me is, uh, I think actually a more fundamental question to ask about um, about atonement. You know, this whole idea of how we we we're reconciled to God in Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's I mean, PSA is like way down at the end of the line. Like there are really fundamental questions that we need to ask much earlier on before we even get to something like penal substitutionary atonement, which is like a very specific, uh, account of the atonement. That's, you know, a fairly recent kind of conception. Um, but I, I, I mean, I'm interested in asking more basic questions about just, just what are we assuming in talking about the atonement at all? Right. Yeah. What, 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 what's loaded up in that? I mean, there's all kinds of, of assumptions about original sin or about the way in which we're connected to, to each other and to, and to, and to, and to Christ. And there's all these other um, questions we need to ask at a more basic level before we get to that. I mean, it's just the idea of God, like what, what account of God do we have um, that, you know, the, the whole issue of like the wrathful God who needs to be placated and, mm-hmm. and made, mm-hmm. you know, happy about us, you yes. know, through the death death of a person right there's all these other issues right that we need to get to um you know uh that we have to kind of address so i mean 
I, you know, it's hard to kind of isolate one of those because they all kind of come as a package, right? It's like a big Absolutely. package deal. Absolutely. You, know, you have this angry God, you have this death sacrifice, and you have this uh, some sort of mechanism that we have to enact or participate in in order to receive the benefits of this death sacrifice, right? Yeah. Um, there's just there's just all this stuff, right? And um, and so, like, I, I mean, I think the whole the whole account needs to be kind of rethought from the root. Um, but, uh, but, and that's because, I mean, I, I start with some different premises about theology that, um, so, so, I mean, I mean that, that whole account is, is, can be t- very, very toxic and it has been for many, many years for people. Um, it, uh, you know, I mean, some of the more obvious implications of that whole atonement package is just the, the very, very negative views that it that it leads to about yourself you know you're taught from a very young age to hate yourself Mm. as a fundamentally depraved horrible ugly you know unlovable person right yeah and you're taught you're taught that unless you conform to these doctrines and believe these ideas and say these prayers and practices and 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 live a certain way you're going to remain unlovable and horrible and awful for the rest of your life. Right. And, and you're yeah. going to die and punished for eternity for all that stuff. I mean, I, you know, it just, it, it's a very deeply problematic conception of faith and of God. Um, and I am, you know, for me, uh, I, I didn't understand a lot of those problems you know, early on, you know, um, and some of that stuff kind of came to me, Later on, after I'd, after I'd already deconstructed my faith, but but looking back on it now, I see just how much that, that shaped and formed me at, at a very young age. And you know, a lot of a lot of my friends, you know, we 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 had this experience of having of being constantly anxious about our salvation, mm. constantly um, uh, worrying about did I say enough prayers, did I repent enough, did I did I believe strongly uh, and profoundly enough? for God to love me, um, to care, you know, all those, all, all that anxiety. I mean, it's no wonder that there's deep mental health issues, right. That yeah. are just destroying uh, people's lives. Um, this, this deep sense of shame and uh, this burden of, of, um, feeling incapable of, uh, of being loved and, uh, and affirmed. So, I mean, there's just, this whole system is is problematic at a very deep level um part of that also for me especially the thing that i really latched onto at an early point um was the issue of of hell and of damnation and and all that i i very early on in my theological education um really you know i think probably not even a year into seminary, um, I knew I was a universalist. I, mm. I knew, I knew that 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 had to be true. Something, some account of it had to be true. Um, it just, it that was the first thing to go for me was this okay. notion that um, that God's judgment of sin would involve a, an eternal judgment of people to to, be, to condemned to eternal separation from okay. God. I, yeah, that, that I. Um, yeah, and and there, are, for me, um, you know, the 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 account I I have of why that's the case has changed over the years. I mean, I 
I did a big blog series back in 2006 about why I'm a universalist. And, you know, 10 years later, I published this book, uh, The God Who Saves, which is my uh, systematic account of universalism. Nice. Um, but but those accounts are, are, ra- are rather different. And I explain how that changed um, in the prologue to the book. Um, but uh, but I knew at a kind of deep, this deep existential gut level um, that it was true. I mean, that, that God's universal, all-embracing love uh, and grace was true. Um, how that was true or why it was true changed over the development. Um, but anyway, so that was... That was important, and it's tied up with the whole atonement issue, um, of course. I'll, so that's that whole package is, is a, that whole thing is an issue. The th- the third thing I'll mention, yes, um, uh, uh, is the tendency towards authoritarianism. Ooh. Um, Ooh. And this isn't this isn't like a specific doctrine necessarily. Uh-huh. Um, this is a more of a cultural issue within. Christianity, but especially evangelical Christianity in this country, um, th- there and this is this is bound up with uh, issues of how we view the church and how we view doctrine and tradition. You know, this notion that you know church and the church leadership is is divinely authorized to carry on this this incredibly important uh, mission and tradition, and so. Essentially, what what they say goes, you know, and yeah. what and and their word is is has divine authority behind it. I mean, this is um, now. I mean, this is more of an issue within, say, Roman Catholicism than it is with the Protestantism, just because of the nature of how we view church leaders. Mm-hmm. But uh, but this, there's an issue there that's pervasive within the church and and how we view leadership, how we view. Um, uh, the the ordained people, those who have been been authorized to be kind of spokespersons for God, um, and uh, and that's especially I think pernicious within American evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the, a big reason for that is, unlike say Catholicism or other uh, more uh, tr- have, you know, traditions that have very clear defined boundaries. Um, evangelicalism doesn't have a doctrinal creed. doesn't have, um, a very clearly defined anything really. Um, and so it has this kind of vacuum. Uh, I, this is kind of this authority vacuum where basically, um, as long as there's a strong personality that's, that's, that commands the attention of the people in the congregation, um, that's all that really matters. And so you have this tendency towards cult of personality yeah. and strong, strong authoritarian leaders who, uh, will by by the sheer force of their personality and their charisma, um, command the attention of people and are given the, all of the authority that one would give to, to God, yeah. uh, in some cases about, and, um, and there's nothing to, uh, to constrain or to limit that authority because there's no body of tradition, nor is there in most cases any sort of oversight or, you know, a right. larger body of, mm-hmm. of churches and like a denomination. Right? There are these independent churches 
that have no oversight, no tradition, no creed, no confession, and essentially it all comes down to a strong male authoritarian figure um, who can command and control things as 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 he sees fit. Yes, and um, it's no wonder then I think that you see such rampant abuse, whether it's sexual or financial or whatever it might be, political. Um, those those problems. Um, are to be expected when when you have that kind of situation um, in place, and uh, and and so it's not it's also not a surprise that if evangelicals over generations have been accustomed and acculturated to expect that kind of leadership, that they would then vote for somebody like Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I mean, this dude, this is rich. I mean, this is this. I, you know, you should be taking notes on this, man. This is this is rich, man. I mean, because this is the type of stuff that I think is is. Is is part of the central nervous system of part of the dysfunction of where where we finding right you know particularly in American U.S. evangelicalism evangelical theology and, and for that matter I mean looking at different other aspects of Christianity as well especially here in the United States and you're naming it I mean I know again even growing up Seventh Day Adventist I mean I was given that that God was this gosh dogs man I mean God was just an an unforgivable God I mean just like you can't I mean, you screw up too much, man. It's just like, you know, you, you look at your penis wrong and it's like, oh my gosh, that's it. That's <laughs> lust. You know, it's like, oh man, you know, and like, yeah. you know, you, you drink this, this, and it's all oh, dude, that's, you know, that's, that's, you'll be in hell. And, and part of me feels like, man, thank God I'm no longer there, but I, I see a lot of people. I mean, I see students who come through my, my classes and, you know, who are just torn, like, oh my gosh, here's this crazy professor, this liberal professor who's telling me that. That guy, oh my, and then universalist, oh my, oh man, it's just, it's just, it's crazy, man. So, I mean, speaking on that, I would love to, I mean, and, and for those of you listening, again, I'll put all this in the show notes and connections to this, but, you know, talking about, you know, your book, you know, The God Who Saves, you know, chapter one, problem, you know, problem of Christian universalism, what, what, um, <laughs> what is, what, what was the genesis, you know, for this and what was, you know, what is, what is it about, the thesis of that? Um, and then ultimately, the third part of that then is is what was the reaction <laughs> from folks in the Christian community uh, and of, of regarding <laughs> this text? But but start first on on the book, man. Talk a little bit about that. I'd love to hear more um, about what what this again, what the thesis was of this of this text. Um, sure. I mean, I, the book the book um, originated out of this conviction that um, that God's God's saving grace was for all. Um, <clears throat> I it initiated. I mean, initially, it it came out of my studies of in theology at Princeton, where I was reading people like Karl Barth, and I, I, you know, one of the things that Barth does that I agreed with immediately early on was the sense that, um, uh, what 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 God does in Christ, um, applies to all. And and it's not something mm. that we can that you know one of the things as growing up as an evangelical I I just took for granted this notion that in some sense I have to save myself I have to basically mm. pray the, a certain prayer and if you do that then I then I somehow I am saved uh, whatever that that means um, yeah. but it was like this, some magical formula that I have to, yeah. to say and I I get the I get God's grace and love all of a sudden. Um, and, you know, I, growing up, I just kind of took that for granted. That was just what you had to do. You had to do, you had to say these words and then you were in, right? It was like the magic passcode. Um, 
And once I started reading theology and realized this is a really disturbing account of God, right? That, you yeah. know, you basically, you're, basically you have this all-knowing, all-powerful deity who has this amazing, lavish gift that God, God can give to people, knowing that they all desperately want this, <laughs> um, and uh, and just waiting for them to say the magic word, right? And yeah, and 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 knowing that a lot of the people who live on this planet will either never hear those magic words or never know them, or they'll only only encounter um, these magic words um, through a very deeply corrupt or perverse perverted or or distorted way, whether it's through a, you know abusive Christians or mm. imperial Christianity or whatever it might be, right? So, um, so and and apparently this God doesn't care. Like, oh, you know, so these people aren't going to believe because they've been uh, ritually massacred and, and abused for generations. Not too bad, you know. I mean, it's like like the, the account of God you have to believe in to make sense of that picture is just dis- it's just disturbingly monstrous. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so. Um, you know, once once you just look, think about the logic behind that account of theology and faith, it's you just can't believe. I mean, you can't believe any of it. It's just um, the whole thing crumbles. So, um, so Bart's Bart's understanding that that the grace that God then basically Bart's innovation was to say that Jesus Christ doesn't simply provide the possibility of salvation, but actualize salvation for everybody, mm. right? So Jesus isn't just the possibility of, of somebody being saved. He actually achieves it for them. Um, so, so And so what that does is it means that you're, you're not telling somebody, believe in order to become saved. Rather, you're saying, you're saved, so you should believe. Um, that's it reverses the message. Um, and once I got that from Bart, that, that just that just clicked immediately. Okay, that that makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, that that's the way in which we should approach our mission and our faith. You know, it's not those people are not saved until they do this. Like they're already saved from God's perspective. We just our our responsibility now is just to care for them and love them and and show them a uh, the community that we that we have and that we have in Christ. Um, so it just completely reframes how we view the Christian life. Um, so I, I immediately latched onto that. Um, the thing for me later on as I developed in my faith was I, um, I became dissatisfied with some of, the, uh, some of the theological moves that Bart made in order to, um, in order to present that picture. Mm. So I knew the picture was right. But I wasn't quite satisfied with some of the moves he made to get there, and and a lot of that came through my study of Rudolf Bultmann, who um, was a subject of my dissertation and a lot of my later research. Um, that's been the bulk of my focus has been on Bultmann's work um, since then. But um, and one of the and Bultmann himself is not a universalist um, in the in the sense that he doesn't think that we are just all automatically saved in Christ. For for Boltmann, Boltmann was um, in this sense, ironically, despite him, by, despite him being the most famous kind of liberal theologian of the 20th century, um, he was evangelical mm. insofar <laughs> as he he had a deeply a strong conviction that faith was his, was a personal encounter and existential um, decision that we um, that it, that is part that you know it is it's particular to each person. Each person's particular reality is important, and we can't simply um, 
uh, run roughshod over the particularities of mm. our existence. Yeah. Uh, so the part of the problem with Bart's account is it kind of it washes over all difference. All differences are erased in this kind of singular, um, uh, all all encompassing vision of of God's grace in Christ, which is which is great and powerful in many respects, but it means that the particularities of our actual life are irrelevant. Mm. And and what Boltman convinced me of was that we need to make the particularities of our of each person's existence significant theologically. Okay. Uh, and so the question was, how do you do that? How do you uh, affirm the significance of each person's particular existence while also embracing some sort of universal conception of salvation and, and God's grace? And so my book is an attempt to reconcile those. Wow. It's an, it's an account of universalism that goes through individual particularity rather than, rather than washing it out with some sort of grand system of, you know, universal grace. So, and the way I do that is basically to, I'm, it's much more pneumatological. Uh, there's your four syllable word, right? You're, it's much more uh, <laughs> spirit focused. So what I do in my book is to say, um, uh, I, I have a, I have an account of faith as co-crucifixion, which comes from Paul. Um, but, um, you're crucified with Christ. Um, and so this notion that, um, the specific event of of Christ, what what makes Jesus significant is he's the one who um, uh, he's the one who experiences this this God abandonment, this abandonment right uh, of, of God, this sense of being um, existentially uh, taken out of himself or displaced or interrupted by 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 the Father, by the divine. Okay, um, so. Jesus is this is the is the uh, normative uh, definitive uh, event of faith, and then in the spirit, each of us um, that that event is repeated in unique and particular ways in each one in each in each person mm-hmm. as they as they too um, experience and encounter. Um, that that faith as existential displacement or interruption or how yeah you know, I, I frame it in different ways but basically the sense that faith is being taken out of ourselves is being being you know, we're taken out of ourselves um, we encounter this divine abandonment um, so the point being that um, what happens in Jesus is repeated particularly in each person and that particular event of co-crucifixion is faith and is is the event of salvation um and it happens in unique and specific ways in each person's life um so i i avoid the traditional kind of christian evangelical version which says you have to kind of consciously um make a a statement of faith or or anything i I make it i make it unconscious and i get this from bonhoeffer bonhoeffer has this idea of faith as this unconscious act where um, it's the faith of the child who um, lives in faith, even though she doesn't isn't aware of it, um, isn't isn't consciously aware of it. And so I use Bonhoeffer's idea of unconscious faith as the way to kind of connect this this reality of Jesus to each person through through this unconscious event of the spirit. Anyway, it's a lot more, you know, I flesh it all out in the book, but um, th- it's my kind of attempt to reconcile Bart's universal vision of grace and Boltmann's 
uh, understanding of our individual existence as being significant. Wow. So. Dude, this is, like I said, man, this is this is deep. This is thick. This is some thick stuff right here, man. This is exactly, this is exactly it, man. This is, this is what's up, man. Well, so in, I, as, even as we're talking, man, and as you're, as you're as breaking this down, I, I did go on Kindle and, and got it. So now I, I have it now and I'm just looking at it and going through this and stuff. And man, you know, again, just, uh, the, you know, the second chapter, uh, you know, soteriocentrism. Uh, mm-hmm. you got the act of salvation, the apocalypse. We talked a little about that agent of salvation. Cause I think, and so much of, um, you know, going back to some of that, uh, awry theology, you know, hinges on this as well, right? Salvation, you know, worried about that. I mean, I know I grew up in an era or not in an era, but just the language of backsliding and being, you know, losing your salvation. And these people have, mm-hmm. have lost the grace of God. And they're, you know, if, 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 if God came back right now, you know, they'd be lost forever in in hell and damnation. And so, um, I'm imagining this is, is, has gotten you into, into some kind of trouble in, in, in spaces. Uh, this, this, this talk of universal, what, what what kind of uh what kind of heresy is this right i mean it's like i i can't i mean i don't believe that but i it, it i would be very interested if you know if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about just some of the challenges of putting something like this out and especially the climate that we find ourselves in as 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 as, as faith faith journeyers um, yeah, I mean, some people will know this already. I mean, I, um, I lost my job as a result of the book. Um, that was, uh, that was the most immediate <laughs> consequence of the yeah. book coming yeah. out. I, um, and you know, I, I knew when I, when I wrote it, when it was being published, I knew that was a possibility. You know, I, I, I did I really didn't think that it was going to be a possibility. <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't. I, I didn't think it was actually going to happen. I know. I, I. It was. Yeah. It just seemed so out. Out. Of, I mean, I just didn't. Didn't. Didn't think that was realistic. But. Um, but I knew. I knew it was theoretically possible. Um, I. You know, I, I defended it as best I could. Um, I still don't think that it warranted that kind of uh, reaction. But at the same time. Um, you know, I've received a lot of very positive support. Yeah. Um, you know, back when I did the blog series, you know, you know, now, you know, 12 years ago now, um, that, that blog series was, uh, it received some negative feedback, sure, certainly, but it received a lot more positive response. And I mean, many people came to me. I, I got, I got, yeah, I, I've been I've received emails from from random people um, for over the over the decade or so since um, uh, quite quite frequently. I mean, it's been um, I was invited to I, I didn't actually accept it, but I was invited to speak at this Universalist Association. Um, there's a there's a, a new group of people, who call, you know, the Christian Universalist Association that arose to kind of counter the Unitarian Universalist Association. OK. Uh, uh, people who are kind of Trinitarian Universalists, I, um, you know, and, and a lot of them kind of reached out to me. Um, and, you know, I, there's a, a, a much, you know, there's a much more significant attention uh, to for, you know, in this area than there used to be. I mean, I even just more more recently, David Bentley Hart, you know, has, you know, has come out very strongly as a Universalist. And, you know, his his 
his recently published uh, translation of the New Testament is a universalist translation of the New Testament. Um, and, you know, he's Eastern Orthodox, so he, and Eastern Orthodoxy has always had a, a very strong predisposition towards universalism, um, if not outright universalism in many cases. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah if you, I mean, their liturgy is uh, highly uh, universalist in uh, implicitly, if not explicitly, in many cases, especially their Easter vigil, you know, Easter liturgies. So, I mean, it's... Um, hmm. So uh, Eastern Orthodoxy has always been the place where you find universalism. I mean, going back to Origen or Gregory of Nyssa, both of whom were universalists uh, in the Eastern Church, um, and there are many others. Uh, it's um, So there's been a lot more attention given to that recently. And, you know, there's been some studies of Origen, some studies of Gregory of Nyssa about their universalism that have come out in the last 10 years. Um, Ramelli, her big book, it's, you know, a massive book on, on universalism that came out, uh, you know, uh, seven or eight years ago, which is uh, this, basically this massive study of universalism as being um, not, not a minority position, but a majority position within the Eastern Church, you know, throughout you know, many of these theologians. Um, and so uh, her work has been really important for a lot of people. Um, I, you know, it's so, I, I feel like, since I came out as a universalist, you know, in 2006, there's been this explosion of interest in it. I mean, even on the evangelical side, Robin Perry has published his book on the evangelical on evangelical universalism. Um, now, his position and mine differ significantly in many ways, but uh, uh, but I appreciate his work um, offering a more evangelical approach to universalism. Okay. It's still universalist, but it's. Uh, it's one that it remains within the boundaries of general evangelical orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, so if his account still has a hell. It's just that eventually that hell will be emptied. Um, so, if, so he has a, a conception of salvation post-mortem beyond. Mm. Um, he, he doesn't think that there's any biblical warrant for the notion that death somehow seals our fate. Um, so, so his, his book is an attempt to argue for, um, salvation happening throughout all eternity and eventually everyone will be saved. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of different kinds. I, uh, uh, I, so anyway, that's, um, it's a, it, for me, it's, it's interesting to see the different versions that have come out. I, I'm actually, so I'm actually working on editing a volume, um, on a different types of universalism, okay. uh, which, uh, it's, um, hopefully they'll come together. It's been, uh, delayed for for a while now, but um, that book um, should it see the light of day, which I hope it will, um, will include kind of a patristic, you know, kind of ancient Eastern universalism, um, an account of evangelical universalism, and an account of kind of kind of modern Bardian universalism, the kind that I have espoused or am closer to. Um, and so, you know, and there's other kinds as well. I mean, my my book, The God Who Saves, is sort of a fourth version, which is kind of doesn't really fit into either one of those. But, um, but the point being, it, it's uh, it's no longer this kind of fringe, wild kind of position on the side. It's uh, it's I think increasingly um, a mainstream position. It's um, so I, I actually I'm I'm pretty hopeful about okay. the future about about these things. I I am not um, you know it's still it was still difficult obviously the you know what happened um, after my book was published but yeah uh, but I think actually in the long run I'm 
I'm glad it happened. Um, it was better for me overall, um, to be out of that environment. And, um, but also I think it's, um, it's, it's raised the attention for some of these issues, um, which has been helpful. Um, and, and just personally for me, um, the experience of, of losing my job and being forced to relocate and, uh, that has all been, that, I mean, that, that situation has been extremely difficult, but it's also, um, it's forced me to, to, to kind of understand my own theology mm. in a way. Yeah. You know, my, my, my whole theological program in that book is to, is a sense of exi- kind of existential abandonment, the sense that this, this, this feeling of being abandoned by God and this experience of being, um, of, of God's silence and, uh, the sense of being insecure and unsure about the future. Um, and Boltman has this phrase that he gets from Luther about faith as journeying into utter darkness. Um, mm. this kind of, we, 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 we forge on ahead without any security, without any, without anything, without any certainty about the future un, you know, un, in, the future is unknown to us. And all we have is, is this trust um, that God is ahead of us. Um, and, and so um, th- that's been really at the heart of my kind of theological, um, my new theological view of, of, of God and my faith. Um, and this last year has, uh, you know, it's been a, an experience of that, of journeying to darkness. And I, um, my, the sermon, I gave a sermon the week before we moved, um, and, uh, with that title journey into utter darkness. And so for me, like my theology has come alive for me in a way that I didn't, ex- I didn't anticipate, um, when I wrote the book yeah. and, uh, you know, I, you know, you never want to, have to encounter those experiences or live through those kind of moments. But, um, but in some ways I was able to speak to myself in that, in that experience, in that moment. And that was, uh, that's been a really good thing. Wow, man, brother, this is, like I said, man, I'm really, I'm really mean, I mean, this is deep. I mean, I love, you know, what you're talking about, you know, that journey into the dark. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I know just in mine and just, you know, other folks I've either, either interviewed and researched or just, you know, had conversations with. I mean, I know that's been a major, major part of their own faith development. I mean, I know it's, 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 you know, it's ambiguous. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, there's, there's no solid ground. I mean, I think that's part of the fear, right? Of something of, like a book like this in the conversation of universalism. I mean, that's, there's fear because it's like, man, I've, I've been raised on this. I've been brought up on this particular meal and now you're trying to put yeah. different spices in it and change it up. And, oh my gosh, you know, just no, 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 no. And so I don't know, I've, I've welcomed that, although it's really hard at times, you know, to, to journey in that darkness. Cause man, that's, woo. Yep. You know, yep. <laughs> it's very hard. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, so, yeah. 
Man, brother, this is this has been powerful, man. Um, I, I, man, I, I'm, I'm gonna go back and re-listen to this myself. Like I said, I'm gonna go back and take some notes on this, man. This is, this is deep. Um, I just, I wanted to comment on this because you just, you put this in in, in a tweet, uh, and I, and and I, and I, I was like, oh man, this 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 stuff right here is 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 good. If you don't, again, I'll put your Twitter stuff on in the page notes, and for those of you who want to follow, brother David. Um, but this was, uh, you put this out, I think earlier today. And you said, I see a dystopian future. Uh, in which corporate America offers to take over the government. And because everyone hates D.C., the masses gladly hand over the keys. You were retweeting um, a Bloomberg, you know, where it said just in Amazon Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan announced plans to create a healthcare company, which I saw this morning. And quite honestly, bro, I was like, oh, I, not, not today, man. It's this State of the Union. And now you're going to release this today. I'm like, ah, dogs, man. So I, I thought that was very fascinating, brother. Yeah, I mean, it was a. Uh, I mean, there's every day there's a story that you have to kind of uh, either shake your head at or or rage or something. It's uh, kind of a, it's a nonstop <laughs> yeah. crisis every, every morning. You're always afraid to, to get on Twitter, afraid to look at the <sighs> newspaper. Oh, man. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, you know, I, I you know, there's um, I don't know. I, I I every day is dystopian. It seems like. I mean, I. <laughs> <laughs> my friend John Flett just just tweeted at me just a moment ago saying um he says I think you'll find that this has already happened <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah exactly all right <laughs> exactly man it was like I was the first time I watched Elysium I don't even remember that with you know brother Matt David oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and yeah. um you know it was like you know you leave the theater thinking like wait a minute this is this is happening already man I mean this is this is occurring right as we speak so yeah. yeah, brother. Oh man. Well, I wanted there's two other tweets that that came out, and again, I I, I probably spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, but uh, <laughs> so Broder Greer, um, who who I love and I've had on the show, he's amazing. I'm trying to get him back. He tweeted uh, earlier, um, was like, you know, when Christianity is reduced to quote unquote saving souls or eternal fire, and in, you know, insurance. Oh, I love that. Internal, eternal fire insurance. We miss out on the profound richness of love in the here and now. I mean, I think it kind of echoes a little bit of what you're talking about. And then another yeah. one he just put out, like, I don't know, a few hours ago, he said, folks bent on over-spiritualizing Jesus often have a stake in the status quo. Um, and I thought that was fascinating as well, particularly about, you know, the, the again, yeah. the over-spiritualization of Jesus, you know, salvation. And I, I just don't want, I don't, I don't want to, I'm coming to church because I don't want to burn in hell or, or I'm, I'm serving God because, you know, I just, I'm, I'm afraid of God. And, and I don't, you know, God's like this big bully on, on the playground and like, you know, he's a jealous God. So it's like, you gotta, you gotta follow God. And so I don't know, man, I'm really appreciating, you know, your, your work. And like I said, I'm, I'm definitely, like I said, it's in my Kindle. I'm going to be on a plane here in 24 hours. I'm going to be, I'm going to reading that, that, that bad boy. So, um, Yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. I'm I'm excited to get into this, man. Um, where can people find you, brother? Where if somebody reach out to you and you know and, and pay you that uh, fifteen thousand dollar honorarium to to come and speak <laughs> at their university, and you know you can you can sell like you know three hundred books in one sitting. Yeah, there we go. Um, you <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, especially. That's where I camp out now these days, uh, pretty frequently. Uh, at D W Congdon. Um, I also have a website, dwcongdon.com. You can find me there and uh, shoot me an email through that site. So, uh, yeah, yeah, invite me to speak. I'm, I'm speaking uh, in Minneapolis uh, in March, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm happy to do more of it. I'm looking forward to trying to get out there and uh, spread the message. So, yeah. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. And again, those of you watching, listening, watching, those of you listening, um, like I said, I'll put these in the show notes and, uh, you know, get you some retweets. Um, Doc, appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure absolutely man and uh we'll definitely get you back on because like i said there's just you've you've just cracked open the door man this was like a you know an hour-long seminary class and now i've got all kind of questions and you know i got to go back and you know check my notes and everything man but thank you for coming on appreciate the work you're doing thank you